This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. How come when Sean talks, his voice looks so much prettier on the little waves? Does he just have a prettier voice? That's not the only thing that, he has that a makes me prettier. Oh, he has a louder microphone. All right. Remember, speak from your diaphragm. Okay. <laughs> from down here. Hello, this is NPR. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know, big week. Do you think Adnan did it or what? What? <laughs> you don't listen to Serial? No. Uh, just wrapped up. It was a podcast. You should yeah, listen. I heard, I heard people talking about it, and I was very confused. Okay. Well, you should go check it out. Um, hi, Sean. Hi, Radio Derek. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yes, I'll be all the way down here all day today. <laughs> uh, when we first started this podcast, we got a tweet early from uh, Josh Weaver, who sent us a link to an article on um, the Nail Drive-In 5 blog, which is written by David Bryant Copeland. The heading on it was very attractive to us both. It was Rails does not define your application architecture. And I think we both immediately were like, whoa, we should do an episode that is Rails is not your architecture. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess my chief frustration when I come on to a lot of projects and typically like if if we're coming on to help an existing team, a lot of times it's because um, things are moving slowly or... um, you know, they just need more, they, they feel like they need more people in order to make things go fast. And a lot of times what I end up finding is code that's, I wouldn't recognize this as like the the main problem, but when you get down to it, it's the code that's too tightly coupled to to Rails. Like people learned how to, you, how to do active record models, and so everything's an active record model. Or people know how to use controllers, so everything's in a controller, that type of thing. Um, so that's kind of what it, what my rant means to me, I guess. What were you thinking about when you when you read Rails does not define your application architecture? I mean, I've said for a long time, you aren't making a Rails app, you're making a Ruby app. Rails is just your glue, and your app and the way you structure your application should reflect that. So, yeah, I think it's a problem if your user class is a thousand lines. Almost certainly, most of those lines either don't care about Rails stuff or don't need to care about Rails stuff. In that case, Rails is Rails stuff is the database. But I think I think your app starts to subtly change. If you try and tease away your business logic and you start thinking about controllers as the thing responsible for HTTP and you start thinking of models as the thing responsible for persistence and that's all they do. And then t- even taking that a step further, another one that I do a lot of times on personal apps is um, making sure that models are the only thing that know about persistence. So basically any relation calls of any kind get encapsulated in some method on that model. So like the controller never calls where or any of the other methods on relation. Right. I try to do that all the time. Like uh, try not to call where, try not to call order, try not to call anything like that. What always bothers me though is that I have no, well, I probably have a way, but I have no way that I like to prevent that from happening. Right. Right. I just I just do it as a good practice, but there's no I can't limit the API of the active record base object. I can try and insulate myself by having these layers in front of my active record objects that I go through. Mm-hmm. But again, there's still that active record object I could always reach down into. Yeah, it just takes discipline, basically. Right. And I've never actually done extracting the layer that the controller talks to in front of them in front of the model as like a 
uh, matter of course. Like I, I will mostly do something like that if I need to do like multiple things in a controller or something that isn't quite one-to-one classical like data mapping into the database kind of thing. Right. I'll extract an object, a service object that does a couple things like saves this thing and then does this other thing or maybe multiple service objects that are glued together for that. I hate that term. That Service ter- that, object? That, that, that term came out of like Rails apps. That, that nobody, well, I mean, that, that thing will get used elsewhere for where service actually has meaning. But it seems like in the Rails world, we've decided to call objects service objects. I'll agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. I hate that term. <laughs> and, and it's like this catch all term. But like uh, when I was doing development basically by myself at my last job, I would hear like service object, service object, service object, and be like, what are these people talking about? I guess they're using all these web services. Like, that must be what this is related to. But I don't use any web services. All my stuff is local. So service objects, those aren't for me. And then it was eventually described to me that the term, whether or not this is true, what stuck for me is somebody described that service objects are an object that exists in service to others, other objects. Isn't that every object? Um, that's basically every object, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, if you think about it, like it's it's I guess playing the role of something that is going to save this active record object and then do this other thing, or sure, I don't know. But yeah, service object, I hate. Uh, what do you like to use? You like Objects. to be specific, object, or like this is a decorator, or this is a serializer, or something like I mean, that. Usually, un- unless it falls into a very specific category, I don't. I, I I've always hated like the the rails bucketing of stuff by the type of thing they do especially because it encourages you to put design patterns in the class name which is not a thing that i like uh to do most of the time so i don't know it's an object the fact that it decorates another object is kind of irrelevant to its task um i'd rather just think of it as the thing i i'm using it for right and we've mentioned the research board before here but at at Thoughtbot, we have a research board where if you have an idea for a way you want to do things that isn't the way we typically do things, you kind of create a card a card for it in Trello and you say, like, we want to try this. This is what we're hoping to see out of it. And then you try it on a project or two and we determine whether or not that's a success from there. But one of the experiments that Joe ran was organizing Rails application classes by use and not by type. Mm-hmm. So instead of having, like, app controllers, app mailers, app models that all kind of might all have something to do with, like, user registration, you would have like app modules registration and then you would put in all of your registration related things in there. And I I remember when I saw that go by, I was pretty excited about it. I was like, oh, this sounds great. If this works out, it's going to be fantastic. But it turns out it doesn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I'm I'm reading through the card now and uh, some of the points here were like getting Rails to do the views properly was hard. Yeah. uh, Because it wants to look in app views for everything. And... Um, generators and rails.vim and all the tooling that's based around rails conventions starts to break down at that point um, which is really unfortunate because i do feel like that's a more logical way to group things i agree i think if you just leave controllers and views alone though it could work as if you just exempt that layer from your packaging which to be fair like that is kind of a package in and of itself right that's the the front-facing side of things i mean that's main in a java app where you have packages for everything main doesn't really you don't have a main for every package. Or I guess right. you could, but... So maybe we should rerun this experiment is what you're saying. I don't know. <laughs> we just leave controllers and views alone and then uh, app modules for everything else or something? Is that what you would say? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for that to work, you would definitely need to make sure you namespace everything in each of these little buckets so that way it's explicit when you're reaching outside of your bucket. Right, which is interesting. I think that's a good signal. That I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. So we should try that out. But... 
one of the things like I do when participating on online forums and giving advice to people, a lot of times people will say, oh, you're extracting too many objects, which I take kind of as a badge of honor. Like, I wouldn't even consider extracting that object. I'm like, great, fantastic. I would much rather get to the point where you've extracted way too many objects and you need to consolidate them than be in the situation where you have bigger objects that are harder to reason about and harder to test. But one of the major complaints about extracting objects is not even people don't know what to name them, but it is where do you put them, which is really interesting. It's a problem <laughs> that I think is entirely at least to me, is entirely unique to Rails. Like, I'd never heard of this where-do-you-put-them problem until yeah. I came to Rails. I mean, that's the thing, right? I, I So I personally don't care where you put it. I'm going to find it with Control-P anyway. Exactly. That's what I say. <laughs> like, if it, if it affects how your actual hierarchy is set up in terms of, like, module namespacing or whatever, being explicit about packages, like, that's one thing. But where the files themselves physically go doesn't matter to me. Right. I'm with you on that. But that is a major, like, where do you put all these objects? Like, do you, And like the idea of like naming these folders after patterns, right. which is something I fall into because that's what Rails does. And like when in Rails, I might as well. But, you know, like we're saying earlier. Um, but so like I'll have an app decorators and then I'll have. Um, so that way you know where to go whenever you're trying to find the object that decorates something. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I will not name, I, I try very hard not to name the thing like user decorator. Right. So at least I have a chance at finding it by a by a good name rather than going through app decorators. But yeah, so that's that's one thing that people definitely push back on is is the naming and the and where to put it. Naming them is much harder to me. Like naming right. them in a unique way, in a meaningful way. Like I will I've been on this kick of extracting query objects. So if you have a scope that is beyond something that's like super simple, uh like where you know name is this or you know, whatever. Or like for this user where you pass in a user ID. I like to try and extract an object that's dedicated to querying for that data. And what I what that ends up with is like, well, now what do I call this thing? Like users query? Users? Do I just call it users? What Like what am I supposed like it's supposed to return a list of users, so do I call it users? And then that's when control P starts to break down because now I've got user, user spec, users, users spec, users controller, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, when you're when you've got a, an object that's name is just the plural of another object, which I've done before as well, and that is that is actually one of the other nice benefits of breaking things apart into modules is that you get to reuse names in places where it's just like I have three objects and I want to name them all animation. Why can't I just name them all animation? And if they are like representing that thing in different contexts, and that context can be represented in a module structure, then you get to reuse it, and hopefully no one needs to do.class.name without the without the module scope and try and figure out what they have but <laughs> yeah i found myself trying to do that in various places going there's this is probably not right <laughs> i shouldn't be doing this yeah naming's hard so naming them is hard but then the freedom of like okay i've got a name for this thing i'm ready to write it or sometimes i write it and then try it and then end up renaming it but the freedom of like okay class whatever and then i generally pause for a second and i'm like <gasps> This doesn't inherit from anything. Like, this is just an <laughs> object. I don't need to include anything here. There's no API that I need to stuff into my object. There's no API I need to adhere to. Like I can do what I want here. And I will generally try and follow, like if I'm writing a query object that is flexible and takes like parameters on what to query for, like maybe I'll call that method where. But I don't have to. Like I can call it whatever I want. Right. And you won't get the uh, random warning that you are using one of the six hundred and seventy-three private instance method names that we use on active record base <laughs> exactly 
So I don't know. Those are the things that make me, I, I end up being really happy about that. And like, I get, then I do get to uh, define my explicit small API that I know as long as people are using that object, they can't inadvertently call order or something like that and maybe make a query that they don't realize is going to be non-performant that way. No, and I, and I think this is not even just in Rails. I think in general, I mean, one of the things, one of the most common like intermediate OO developers, one of the mistakes they make is not extracting enough objects because they start seeing like, oh, this object should represent this thing. And this thing is so many different things. So that should all go in one place. Um, yeah, not ex extracting objects is a good thing. Um, in regards to, to your point earlier, though, I think it, it, it was when I first started getting into Rails, and this was when my mind was like, wait, how does it know what controller to use and what folder to look for views in? It's, it does so much magic stuff. So in my mind, like Rails could do anything. And it took me like three months for it to occur to me that I was allowed to put a file in app models that didn't inherit from Active Record Base. Like I legitimately just thought, I never thought about it, but I guess in my mind I figured like it would error if I tried to do that. Yeah, I've had conversations with people here about that. Like, I'll go to put something in app models, and they'll be like, but it doesn't inherit from Active Record Base. So it just bothers some people. Like, everything in app models should inherit from Active Record Base. And then you get into these argu arguments, like we said before, about where this thing belongs instead of does this thing belong? Like, well, is the it's job like, it's doing valuable? I mean, then that implies that if something does not directly persist to the database, it is not part of your domain models. Like, that seems very strange to me. Correct. Yeah. Once you try and enforce it. Right. Um, how about lib? Whatever happened to putting everything in lib? <laughs> um, that used to be a thing. Yeah, I still see it quite a bit. Like various things that are clearly tied to the domain put in lib, and I that's I object to that. Basically, to me, lib is a holding pen for things that may make sense elsewhere on their own, like things that you might someday extract into a gem. Basically, sure, right? That makes sense. So you put it in lib, and you see how that works out, and you see if you need to explicitly tie things to your domain model. And if you don't, then that can be extracted. Right. Potentially. But other than that, I don't I tend not to use lib. How about you? No, I mean it's short for library, right? I would assume. It's for library code. Sure, library or Is that is that what it's short for? Because that's there's there's a Unix path called lib as well, isn't there? Yeah. Like user local lib. What kind of shit goes in there? <laughs> I don't even know. It's one of the great mysteries of our time. Let's see. In my user local lib. Oh, we're going to look this up. All yeah, right. we're gonna, I'm just going to read off. I will now do a dramatic <laughs> reading of my user local lib. Yeah, it's libjpeg.a, libjpeg.dilib. <laughs> lib okay, sorry. Yeah, it, it's, li it's library files. <clears throat> right. Which makes sense then that the default for Ruby gems is to stick your code in lib because if you're making a gem, all code is library code. Right. Yeah, and then, you know, there's always the argument that DHH things that we're stupid for making which is if you don't have to load rails to run your tests for not your whole suite but if you want to test like hey i'm working on this object i want to run the test for that object if you can avoid loading rails to test that object it runs really really ridiculously fast right and it to me it makes sense that he doesn't he thinks that's a silly argument argument because it's clear he's not doing test-driven development so sure that feedback loop speed is not important to him um, he's not running that sing that single test during the design phase of that of of writing whatever method he's writing. He's not running that single test ten twenty times. Like he's writing the code, and then later he's writing a test, and then he's running the test. I guess I don't know. I mean, I think it's even val a valid argument if you're not doing test driven development, if you're only using them to catch regressions, especially in Ruby where you don't have a compiler like checking silly mistakes. If I'm doing refactoring, I will change like two characters and run the test to make sure I didn't just break the entire application. Yeah. Because um, I'm always terrified. Right. And hopefully you have good 
test coverage. Hopefully. It's come up it's come up for me a couple of times where I'll be on an application that doesn't have great test coverage and I don't quite know that yet. So I make a te- I make a change and I make a refactoring change, a tiny little change and all the tests pass and I'm like, "All right, great. All the tests pass." <laughs> never opened the site in a browser, never did anything like that and uh comes back to bite you. So, yeah. I've run into people who do that when I'm like, it's like, no, you should go verify yourself once in a browser that the thing that before you open the pull request, make sure the feature actually works. <laughs> it was nice though, like when we when you get on a more established project that has followed TDD from beginning to end, like you learn where its test coverage is really good, and you're like, I can make this change. I never have to open the browser. I know this works. I know we have test coverage here, but what certainly when right. you're coming onto a new project, you do not have that pleasantness, I guess. <laughs> Well, and it's also just doing the visual check, right? Because it's possible that, yes, the functionality works, but, like, the text input's co- halfway covered up by the sidebar or something like that. Um, yeah, that's, that's what the designer's for, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're the ones who look at it. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea how to place a text box. It can't, can't be done as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, uh, so one of the things we talked about here a while ago was... Um, not on the show, but here in the Boston office was Uncle Bob has clean arc has this clean architecture blog post that he's I think he's done talks and blog posts about it before. Have you seen this? Yeah. So it's basically about having which way your dependency graph points basically, and you want you want to isolate yourself from your library code or your framework code as much as you can. I agree with everything it's saying. It's it's just really easy to misinterpret what isolating yourself from that means. Because you're not you're not realistically going to switch out your database layer. Like it's fine to to have your data models know about your about how your data is stored as long as it's only in logic related to persistence. Yeah, to me, to me, the isolating yourself is all about providing the API you want, and yeah. it's not about I'm going to switch out my application framework. Like now, I'm not using Rails anymore. I'm using Sinatra. Right. I've in you know. I mean, I've only been doing Rails development for since like 2008 or something like that, but um, I've never done that. Uh, I've been doing web development for a long, long time now, which I will not admit. And uh, I've once switched the database backend. Um, and that was relatively recently. Well, that one's recently, always a pain. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that there would have been a good way to do that. Like if I hand wrote all my SQL, I'd still have to hand write the SQL again <laughs> yeah so no if, if you are truly decoupled from your database backend you're not doing anything interesting with your database backend they all do interesting stuff that the others don't do or do differently right it, it does it does make it easier though but i think that's sort of and this was an argument we got into as well with active job was like is the job is the role of active job now to make it so like oh i can go switch from between rescue and back burner and sidekick and i don't have to change any code like is that legitimately something people care about or is it kind of the same as active record where it's less about truly abstracting away the database and more about making sure that every application interacts with the database in a similar way so that you can go from one rails application to another and know how to do stuff Right. And to me, that's what active job is. I don't know what, how that came down. But to me, it's I don't care what your queuing backend is. I know I can do these basic things the right. same regardless. And if I want to do something a little more advanced, then, yeah, I've got to dig in and, and learn how that system actually works. But the API to it is consistent as the, yes. the major thing. Well, that was my argument to it was that like active job should make sure it's not doing anything that might trounce on additional features that only some backend providers will give you like you shouldn't have to then all of a sudden stop using active job in order to use an advanced feature because then that defeats the entire purpose if its purpose is to just have a structure to the code right and so how'd that come out 
It didn't really come out either way. I mean, the specific thing I was arguing about, I lost. But the specific thing I was arguing about was really unimportant anyway. It was, <laughs> it was, it was that uh, delayed job happens to use YAML serialization, and that actually does open a lot of doors. That if you default to only JSON, which means you can only serialize primitives, you can't take advantage of certain things. And we do use JSON for serialization, no matter what backend you're using. But Ultimately, yeah, the, the the role of active job, I think we do agree. We did agree, though, is not truly to make it so you can just switch from one to the other because nobody really wants to do that. Right. Getting back to like breaking away from the framework and having classes that like don't inherit from anything, right? So you get to define yeah. your API. One of the things I find myself doing, I talked earlier about query objects. The other thing I find myself doing more and more of is defining form objects. So objects that exist just to play the role of something in a form mm-hmm. and an avoid like mostly. I turn to this when I find myself wanting to do accepts nested attributes for on something because I'm yeah. never happy with the way that ends up. So I will turn to creating an object that can be used in the form. Um, the problem with this, well, there's a lot of problems with this. Like I'm always happy when I start out like, all right, I've got this object. It's just an object. It has to have active model stuff in it. But okay, I've got a little active model stuff in here. That's fine. But then it comes time to like handle errors, and I've got to figure out how do I get the errors from this child object on this form object up to the form, up to the you know the the right. object I'm on right now, various things like that. So I haven't, I've yet to see. I've seen all sorts of gems that are designed for creating these form objects, but I've yet to see one that handles it 100% the way I want. And I'm not even sure what that way is, right? Like, right. I go back and forth between like I I want the validations as close to the metal as I can get them, basically. So. If I can do, you know, I'll start with a null false in the database if, uh, right. if something's required. But then on the model, I want to have that the field is required. But the model might not be the thing I'm using in the view. I might be using this form object. So, like, should I put the validation on the form object or should I put the validation on the model? I would say on the form. Like, I think that's the interesting experiment, right, is that you always have a form object and you start thinking of validations. Like, if you actually have a data integrity problem, then you go put it on the database where it can actually verify data integrity. Um, and if you are, if it's for user interface uh, purposes, if it's just to display something to the user, well, that should that should go on the form. That doesn't really have anything anything to do with shit going into the database. Interesting, yeah. And I think the reason why I I shy away from that a little bit is it's very well possible there's other places in this application that are already using you know the simple the the active record model version of this for a form, right? Right. And now I've got to create this more complex form that's user-facing. Like, maybe the other form is just for an admin. This form is user-facing. Well, and that's why I say, like, always. You know, <laughs> so it definitely is a, is some, uh, a leap of faith that that would be harder to make on an existing application. Right. But if you sort of just have this, like, here's how you represent a thing in the view, or more real, or real, really, it's one form per place you're displaying it, and you think about the specific inputs that you're displaying there and what's what's valid in that context. This is like how, for example, Scala Play does it because they don't have an ORM at all. They do have what is essentially a thing that maps like plain objects to SQL queries slightly nicely, um, but that's about it. And so when you're building forms, you, legit, you actually do have to build up an object for this and um, in order to display the input in the view because the form just ends up, the view is a function and the form object ends up being an argument to the view. In order to display any of these inputs, you have to define that input on the form object and um, the validations are a property of that input, which then also means that they are validated client-side whenever possible. Since this is the same object that would be responsible for taking in the form submission and returning you back the object that you used to put into the form, um, then you'll you'll either get back a 
domain model or a collection of errors. That sounds interesting. That does sound nice. It's just, it, well, it's different. Like, there's, there's pros and cons. Um, sure. And if you do have something that you have displayed in a lot of places, you risk duplicating stuff, right? If you have to display it slightly differently so you can't just reuse the same object over and over again. Right. And, like, I'm, I'm thinking about the approach of, like, could I only put those validations on a form object? Could I write form objects all the time? And would I be happy with that approach? And the thing that keeps coming back to me is that I still need active model for that. Yeah, I'm working on that. Okay, great. Because I this is my <laughs> this is my super. You heard it here first. Not I could totally just change my mind because I'm really just thinking about it. But um, I kind of want to deprecate the idea of the active model API. There's an internal object we use that has 13 public methods total in Active Record, and it has basically everything the form builder needs to do its job. So I'm thinking of coming up with a simpler object that's really easy to build yourself and compose yourself that represents what the form builder needs that is not active model or active record and has a sane API. Yeah, I mean, the idea, I certainly appreciate what active model did, which was take all this stuff that was previously only active record and make it available to everybody. But yeah. now I want to go a step further and be like, okay, this is crazy. Let's do less. Can we do less? Uh, can we make it a little more coherent? So I I'm constantly like, what What do I need to define here? What methods do I have to define? Like, it's gotten a little better now that I just do include active model model once you're in Rails 4, but that's just doing those four or five other includes that you need to do for you. Right. And then every once in a while, you still need to be like, oh, I, I, wanna, I want uh, translations here. What do I need here? What do I need? Like, I, that one might actually be included in active model model. I don't, I know. don't know. That's See, this is the problem. Like, the API is so big that um, it's very difficult to figure out what you yeah. Like, it keeps coming up. It's a thing we want in Rails or form objects. They just haven't quite come out right yet. Right. And, and I think I think everybody's going through that, right? I mentioned earlier there's a bunch of different gems that you can look at for doing this. And I think everybody's still searching for the right way to do it. And so it makes sense that Rails hasn't canonicalized one approach to it because I don't think there's a an agreement among like any small group of people right. <laughs> about what the right way to do these things is yet. I mean, in my, in my opinion, the big thing, though, is that the form object should be responsible for knowing how to produce the, the data for the input tag. Like, I'm not just saying the value that goes in the field, but also things like if it's a numeric field and if it has a min and max and stuff like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be literally the HTML string, but like whatever data encapsulates that. I think the form object should be responsible for that and then also for taking the data that was submitted by the form. Wow. You used, used an and there in your responsibility. <laughs> I, I did use an and there because, well, the, the thing responsible for parsing and validating input, if that's the thing that was as close to producing the place to put the input as possible, you're going to have the least likelihood of accidentally introducing a vulnerability you didn't expect or, like, in order to accept something, you have to add it to the thing that produces it. It makes the entire cycle much clearer and much more encapsulated. And if that were the case as well, if this one object knew about what made it, what makes it valid and what types it was supposed to be, it could also handle the client-side validation for you in addition to server-side validation. Exactly. Which would be nice. And you can get those both for free, basically. Either through HTML5 validations or with JavaScript or whatever. Apparently in Yasod, they make it impossible to actually, at least through a form that you built, to submit uh, input that wouldn't be type-safe on the Haskell side. It sounds like magic to me. Black magic. That does sound like magic. So Yasod is the Haskell web framework of choice yes. for the most part. And we've got some applications running with that. Um, one publicly called Carnival, which does the comment system for our blog. 
I don't really know. I've played around with Haskell a little bit. It's I don't I I guess I haven't done it enough consistently to say whether or not I like it. But every time I go back to it, I'm constantly confused and thinking <laughs> like, oh, I don't know about this. I'm not enjoying this. But that might just be because I'm not like every time I learn the same ten percent, right? Right. And it's too far between sessions of practice. Um, so I've just got to dedicate some time. And going to a functional language like you. If you're if you're coming from an object oriented background, it's not like you know knowing Ruby and going and learning Python, or even switching to like a statically typed language, right? It's it's so fundamentally different, and I think there's this natural reaction to having to basically go back to being a beginner in order to learn it. Right, which sucks. to me, it's not even the functional part because I'm okay with that. I'm down with that. <laughs> it's the type system and the and the errors and things like that. Like I know the type system is the reason to do Haskell, right. but right now. The errors it gives me are impenetrable, right? I know that, like, oh, and, yeah. and this is the case for every language, right? Like, every language has its, like, Ruby has its, like, you called ID on nil, and you're like, what's going on? Or actually, that's not bad. Yeah, that's, but the that, old, well, that's gone. That's now. the improved one. <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah. So, um, but every language has its, like, what the hell's going on here errors? But when you do get a compiler involved, a lot of times you can get better errors out of that. And the Haskell errors are good to people who know what they mean and i think you i think i if i were to stick with it i would pretty quickly understand what they mean but well and i think it, it's the same like scala had had this for a while too and and uh, in 2.10 one of the big pushes was to like improve the errors because compilers tend to produce errors that only make sense if you implement if you're the person implementing the compiler and then like it just takes time and usage of a language to figure out what errors people actually are going to end up seeing a lot and the error could be most meaningful, like if you know everything you're doing, like, hey, this error is very specifically telling you exactly what's wrong so you can go fix it. But in practice, even if you know the language, that's usually not very good. And it just takes time to figure out, like, most of the time if you see this error, it's because you forgot this annotation here or, like, you did something that's technically valid but not what you meant. And that's such a common occurrence that we should just add that to the message. You might have meant this instead of this. I think that just happens over time. I think that's... Haskell's the same way, personally. Yeah, I mean, when I was doing C Sharp uh, years ago, it, the compiler also got to the point. Like, when it first started out, the compiled errors were, as you said, you'd be like, what? what is this thing talking about? Like, I have no idea. Let me go Google for this. But then by the time I was, you know, wrapping up my C Sharp career, I guess you would say, like, the compiler error would be like, there's an error on this line. You said this. Here's the problem with it. You probably meant this. It's like, well, yes, that is exactly what I meant. <laughs> it hadn't quite gotten to the point where I could right-click and say, yes, <laughs> implement that for me in Visual Studio. But I'm sure it was coming. And like, when you have a compiler and you have a, um, a language that can be very easily analyzed statically, you end up with tools like uh, in the .NET world, we had ReSharper, which would basically like highlight some code as you write it and be like, mm, there's a better way to write this. And you'd be like, yep, yep, that is better. Go ahead and write that for me. Yeah, well, and and Haskell does the same thing, and it's linter, right? If you do something that can be expressed in a in a point free way, which is like if you're calling two functions um, that both take an argument, and you're like passing the result of the first to the second. Point free for people who don't know is when you don't ever explicitly take an argument in the function composing them. You're just like, hey, this function is the composition of these other two functions, um, and it's 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 more like a variable assignment than a function definition in other languages. Yeah, that, that term really tripped me up because it was like... Because it involves more points. Because it involves more points. So like in Haskell, dots are part of the syntax. Is it syntax? Yes. It's a method. It's, a, it's method. a function. I mean. Damn. Um, I always get those mixed up. Um, I'm always attributing everything to syntax, basically. So it's a, it's a function. Right. And 
then they introduce this concept called point free and i'm like oh okay there's going to be none of these points and then there's more of them you're like (laughs) they got this wrong i think they meant pointful like no no they're talking about the mathematical definition of point free which uh mike burns linked me to and then i read for about half a second and then closed the tab and said okay Yeah, no, there, there, there's an actual page on the Haskell wiki that's just, why does point free mean more points? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I'm going to try and redouble my efforts on picking up some Haskell stuff. Like I, I said during our winter holiday investment time, I basically made a point that maybe it's just that I don't like Haskell and rethinking that I haven't given enough of a shot, really. And I might, but I like I think I need to give it a shot for like a couple days in a row at least so I can say yes, I gave this a shot over an extended period of time and it's just not clicking with me. Maybe something else will. I don't know. I mean, I think I know a lot of people like to get really excited about some really specific language. It's going to be, you know, it's going to solve all of our problems. I think that they're all terrible, but they're all slightly less terrible in certain ways. And I think it is worthwhile just to learn a lot of languages broaden your horizons and at the very least it'll make you a better programmer in whatever language you are working in because you can bring concepts from those other languages along with you right it is really useful to be able to be like oh this is exactly like this other thing i know and this other like when you're learning a language you can draw corollaries to other languages you know and when you're trying to solve a sticky problem you might be able to be like what if we approach this functionally with this yeah or even even in your object-oriented programming right um so i think that's uh You know, I know that Gordon and Tony and Mark and all of our iOS developers here are having fun with Swift, which can be a functional language. And they're having a lot of fun taking what they've learned from looking into Haskell and applying it to what they're doing in Swift. And, you know, there's some people coming from Objective-C land, which, you know, they're also Objective-C developers, but there's people coming from there that are kind of pushing back and being like, this crazy Haskell-like stuff, get this out of my Swift. But it's interesting to see especially in a language like that that's so brand new and came out of nowhere basically like delivered here boom new language yeah uh, it's interesting to see where people end up taking that well and i don't think it's necessarily any more possible to do these things functionally in swift than it would have been to do them in objective c just now the compiler is more able to guarantee type safety on them and the syntax is better i guess is the other right. one the syntax i think is what makes it taking a block in objective c is a pain in the ass i'll take your word for that <laughs> um, I mean, but you could always just have it take, right? You could always just have it take an object and a method name if you really wanted to. It's an anonymous function you know, of sorts. Same basic idea. But yeah, Rails Rails is not your architecture, so you should learn Haskell is what we're saying. <laughs> yes, that is what we're saying. No, um, but that, that's one of the other benefits, right, is when you start breaking out your business logic into these smaller pieces that are decoupled from Rails. And that turns out you have that one really performance critical part and Ruby is your bottleneck because that happens. You can totally break that out into a service and you write it in Go, which will make it way faster. And then you and then you make an HTTP call and now it's not faster anymore because you're <laughs> right. making an HTTP call. But you can do that, right. which you can't do if you make Rails your, your entire architecture. Yeah, the project I'm on right now is a, has a service-oriented architecture and all the pieces are written in Ruby. And it's my opinion and several of the people there's opinion that there are too many services and they're kind of extracted in a haphazard way like not necessarily coherent and so you know i I was railing against that for quite a bit and then i would run the tests on one of the services and be like oh this only took three seconds (laughs) like that part is really nice but unfortunately once you go to production all of those connections that i have stubbed out actually have to happen and and you guys don't. I'm I'm gonna assume there's no integration suite where all of the services actually talk to all of the other services. No, the integration suite is uh, starting up the app and playing around with it and yeah. seeing how it goes. But even that, everything's local, so it's still pretty fast. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I think service-oriented architecture really is better when your services don't have to talk to each other and you look at it more like the Amazon side of things where they only all get called in isolation to build the page, but then to build each individual part of the page, that service doesn't have to talk to 16 other services. Right, yeah, the tricky part about what I'm doing now is we've got this one service that has only a front end. It needs to talk to a single back end and get a list of data back that is contained by several other backends that you need to consolidate. <laughs> that sounds slow. Yeah, so it's a little slow. We've done the best we can. It's down to like, I don't know, maybe four or five network requests. Have you tried putting it in Mongo? Yeah, that's the next step. I'm just going to, we're just going to Mongoize the whole thing. Definitely. <laughs> okay, so it sounds like the things we definitely agreed on were break out of the framework as much as you can, not necessarily because you want to isolate yourself from the framework, but because you want to control your API and just have single responsibility objects. Is that, I mean, those are what I do it for. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Right. I also do it for test speed. Yeah, and test speed secondarily, I would say, but definitely important. What else did we say? That was, we said that, a lot. Yeah, that was basically it. Don't worry about what folder to put these things in. Just pick one, put them there. Yeah. Uh, try and come up with good names. But again, like, do what you can. But um, Stop calling them service objects. Please, for the love of God. I'm still going to put them in app services. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. I mean, that's fine. If you need a folder, that's like, like, it, it's really, a that folder should just, that should be app. Like, that should just be app. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Why aren't routes an app? Why aren't routes are not, routes are not a configuration thing. Right. Yeah. I agree. We should fix that. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> That's another thing saying. Sean's going to fix. He's going to fix where the routes are stored. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I'm totally going to... Nobody's going to yell at me for changing that for it's, no reason other than I didn't like it. It's in config because it's a DSL. Like, it's not... It is Ruby code, but I think when you're yeah. coming to Rails, it's definitely like you could look at that and not know that it's Ruby, right? That's fair. And it's not until, like, all of a sudden you're like, wait, I can put an if in here and I can do this and I can instantiate an object here. Like, this is this is Ruby. I know this. <laughs> yeah no we could never change it though everyone knows where to look for it right okay so so you're crossing that one off your list yeah all right anything else i think that's it oh don't put stuff in the controller like what that's another don't put anything like just nothing yeah. just put nothing just there. nothing no actions <laughs> that's a one way to limit your api in a rails app no you were asking what we said was like <laughs> my point was controllers are responsible for http so don't put business logic there and don't put complex object relationships in there like leave that to your yes. objects yeah right skinny controllers and skinny everything else is really yes. the, really the key but leave the business logic to things you can call dot new on very nice i like it that's tweetable that is tweetable all right um so if you want to get in touch with us about anything we said in this episode or things you want us to cover uh you can tweet us at underscore bike shed on twitter or you can email us at hosts at bike shed.fm the show notes for this episode you can find at bikeshed.fm slash five. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time. Bring, cool. bring. <laughs> <laughs>